When I came here nearly five years ago, one of the uh, joys I had was looking through all of the old books gathered throughout Warnell Road history 100 years ago. Uh, many of the books I wouldn't recommend. Um, a lot of them you know, doubt the, the resurrection of Christ or the virgin birth. Um, Warnell's had a, a checkered history as far as its faithfulness uh, to orthodoxy and to the scriptures. One book that I would recommend is the biography of a man named Charles Thomas Studd. I wonder if anyone's heard of Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd. Um, he was a world-famous cricket player from England. Now, I know kids, when you hear the word cricket, that you think of a bug. But for a lot of places in the world, they hear the word cricket, and they kind of, kind of think of, of how we uh, hear the word baseball. It's one of their favorite sports. So England and India, Bangladesh, other countries. Cricket is one of the biggest sports in those countries. Uh, C.T. Studd was born to a very wealthy family in 1860. He had uh, extremely good and loving parents. He had two brothers that also excelled at cricket. And he loved his brothers dearly. In a sense, he had it all. He had worldwide fame. He was extremely athletic. He had old money because he was born into money. He also had new money because he earned his way through sports. He had an influence in politics and business. And he had the healthy foundation of a loving family and solid friendships. His world began to change when his father became a Christian under the preaching ministry of D.L. Moody. His father, now having this newfound faith, uh, would occasionally invite a, a traveling evangelist into his home. So one of these traveling evangelists came to his home, and he had his three sons sitting there in the living room. And this preacher was preaching the gospel to his three sons. And on the same day, all three stud brothers gave their life to Christ. From that moment on, C.T. Studd, uh, recall, re recalling that moment of his conversion, uh, Charles Thomas Studd says this, I got down on my knees and did say thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew that when it was to be, what, that what it was to be born again and the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. Money, influence, family, friendships. Again, he in a sense had it all, but he was willing to leave it all behind for a remote life in countries like China and India and parts of Africa. He penned these famous words from a poem that I have on my wall in my office. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you're a Christian here, you believe those words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But sometimes what we know about life kind of gets pushed to the back. We get distracted from what we know what is most important and other things kind of start piling up. 
Psalm 90 informs us of the brevity of life and the heart of wisdom. That's our text today, Psalm 90. It's found on page 496 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Before I read it, just something of note that this is the oldest psalm that we have. Of the 150 psalms, this is a psalm of Moses. Moses lived roughly 1,400 years before Jesus. So that puts this song, this psalm, at roughly 34, 3,500 years old. Let's just consider that. I wonder if you've ever read a song that's 3,000 to 500 years old. Well, here's probably the oldest song that any of us have ever seen or read. I'm first going to read verses 1 to 11, and then when I get to my second point, which is the heart of wisdom, I'll read verses 12 to 17. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away like, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Happy Easter. Lord, help us to see what you're teaching us in this text. For your name's sake and for our good, we pray. By the power of your spirit, would you do this? In Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at the brevity of life in verses 1 to 11. The superscript says that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the only psalm that we have that's attributed to Moses. Moses does have a few other songs that are in uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But it's called the man of God in a couple places, in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Ezra. And what's going on here is it's meant to kind of undergird his authority or his experience as a true prophet of God, as one who is esteemed by God. It kind of gets out the highlighter and says, this is a psalm of Moses. You know, you have David, 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 you have Asaph, Asaph, you have sons of Korah, you have ones that are attributed to no one. And then you all of a sudden you have this psalm of Moses. Moses is the one that God has used to deliver his people out of bondage and lead his people through the wilderness. This is Moses. Moses is the one who delivered them to the brink of the promised land. 
but because of his own unbelief, wasn't allowed to make it into the land of Canaan. You'll see uh, Moses seems to be doing what the, the man of Psalm 1 is meant to do. He's meditating on the law of the Lord, or the first five books of the Bible. And he's gaining wisdom through it. Particularly, we see that he's looking at the beginning of Genesis. So, so check this out. He says in verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Other versions have the word uh, refuge there. Instead of dwelling place. But the idea is similar. God is a place of safety and comfort. And he has been for a very long time. For how long? Before the earth was formed. Before mountains were brought forth. Or the, the world was ever formed. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. See God is eternal. God has always existed. The very beginning of the Bible says this. In the beginning God. In the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. Before the formation of this world was God. He existed prior to you being born, prior to your parents being born, prior to Adam and Eve being born, prior to the world being formed. His life has no beginning and his life cannot have any end. He is eternal and eternity cannot be measured. I looked up just to see how much of the world or the universe rather we can measure. Uh, there's a galaxy called GNZ11. It is the farthest away, the furthest detectable galaxy from earth at 13.4 billion light years away. And scientists, astronomers presume that there are further galaxies. So we can, in a sense, measure that in light years. But you can't measure eternity. Eternity goes on and on and on in time and space. It's, it's unfathomable. I was with a friend the other day and we were walking and it was a clear night. The stars were out. and had one of those moments that, that is so wonderful, right? When you see just how small you are. And you just kind of get lost in the wonder of stars and the moon. And your problems just shrink. God is eternal. God is big. In contrast to God's eternality, people have a beginning and people have an end. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Moses, again, seems to be wrapped up in the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God created man, how? Out of dust. But then later in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, as some of you are familiar with, God curses man after man rebels against him and sins. He says, by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then verse 4, commenting on the brevity of life, 
contrasted with the eternality of God, it's like one night compared to a thousand years. So, so children, just, just think about last night. You went to bed and you woke up. Now consider the lifetime of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. And at some point, you can trace your lineage to a thousand years. The psalmist here is saying that one night is like a thousand years to God. He looks at time in an utterly different manner than we do. Our first parents lived longer than we did. And the scriptures record that the first humans lived a long time. Some not so long, but some could live up to 800, 900 years. However, compared to God, that's like one day or one night. You have this returning to dust language in Genesis 3. And then you have this flood language in verse 5. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. What Moses is doing is showing the all-encompassing nature of death. It comes over everyone like a tsunami. You cannot avoid death. Just like the flood in Noah's day. So whether you are the oldest person living, who I just looked it up, Kane Tanaka in Japan, she's 119 years old and some days. Or as I mentioned last week, like our dear friend Catherine Stewart, who was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, a rare pediatric cancer, who against many odds lived all the way to 19 years old. She died a couple weeks ago. Whether you're 19, whether you're 119, death comes for you. There's no way to avoid it. It sweeps over all like a consuming flood. People are forgotten. Remembered for a little while, then the next generation comes. It's like grass that pops up and then goes away in the next season. It's like the flower, the magnolia flowers, uh, the magnolia tree, the flowers that are blooming will be there for a week, two weeks maybe, and then they fall off. This poetic imagery is meant to take our attention to a very sobering reality. So enjoy the flowers, enjoy the springtime. But God has another lesson in there for us, doesn't he? Life is short. Life is brief. The Bible is declaring to us what we instinctively know, but, like we, don't, but, but, but we don't want to think about. Life is here and then in a flash it's not. Now just consider these texts that talk about the brevity of life. Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Job 7, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Job 8, for our days on earth are a shadow. Psalm 78, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. James 4, 14, 
You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James says, like a vapor, like a breath, like hot breath on a cold day. You see it for a second, then it's gone. That's life. Friends, yes. Measured against eternity, that is life. Here one second, gone the next. In verse 7, we get the reason for the brevity of life. Look at verse 7, Psalm 90. Verse 7 tells us that God has definitively acted in this curse by making man mortal. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, even our secret sins in the light of your presence. What Moses is singing about here is that death is a penalty. God's wrath reveals itself in the fact that we all die. Penalty becomes, comes because we are guilty. And we're not just guilty because of what we outwardly do. Notice that there. It's not just how you treat others, the words you, you say to them, the way you, um, yeah, the things you do outwardly. But it's the secret sins of the heart. Imagine a person who, who seemingly just never sins. Yeah, you know the type. Just kind, charitable. And you might joke with your friends like, I, you know, we have this joke like, I know the doctrine of sin, the depravity of mankind, but, but does that person actually ever sin? And you know they actually do. But they never get cross with anyone. They're kind. They have a right view of justice and they act upon it. Their tongue is used to build people up always and never to tear down. Even that person has thoughts and feelings that are contrary to God. Those lusts, greedy cravings, curses in the heart, never spoken, but felt deeply. They are all in plain sight of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is secret to man, what can, be, what can be concealed to you about my heart, what I can't see about your heart, God sees it all. He knows your secret sins. He could get out a scroll of your life and all your sins would lay bare before him. Friends, sin is evil because it's an affront against God. John Piper, talking about the, the sinfulness of sin, says this. This is why sin is evil. The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life in being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody in the world. That is the ultimate outrage of the universe. Verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So, is God angry at us? Is God really angry at us? Well, yes. But not first and foremost because sin hurts people that we love 
or sin hurts other image bearers, but because God, according to God, sin is blasphemous. It's an offense against him. Image bearers are lying about the nature of their creator when they sin. Sin, which seems normal and casual to us, is an offense and is outrageous to God. God hates sin. Moses kind of summarizes everything in verses 10 to 11. Here's the problem. Here's the tension that Moses is feeling. In verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Friends, Moses is grieving over the havoc of death. Matt McCullough in his uh, somewhat recent book called Remember Death writes this. Death is not the natural end to a merely biological life. Death is not the end to, uh, um, not the end, is not the natural end to a merely biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the creator designed by, the, by that same creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. It exposes our foolish confidence in our freedom to be whoever we want to be. And if you're like me, kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, you've been hearing that your whole life. You can do whatever you want to be. Be whatever you want to be. Just aim for the stars, you know, whatever. Shoot for the moon. If you miss, you'll land among the stars. Like, like okay, thank you for the encouragement. But, but help me with the problem of death. Because <laughs> death comes. And, and I'm, I didn't make it to the NBA like I wanted to. So help me understand. Give me some sound advice. She's staring at the reality of death and eternity. Can begin to put other things in their proper place. Charles Thomas Studd said this. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I wonder when the last time you were at a funeral was. Funerals are sobering. There's not a lot of laughing and glee at funerals. In, in recent years, we've, we've changed the name to funeral to, to celebration of life. I think there can be some wisdom in that. But generally, it seems that that's a fear of facing what is, in reality, sobering. Dark, heavy grief. Denying that death really is Seemingly final, that the ones that we love are no longer with us. So we can celebrate life. But let's also face a sobering reality that we all will face death. It's good for your soul, Christian. I remember being, uh, when I was a pastor in Toronto, uh, we would take, we had, we had a much uh, more diverse age-wise congregation than we do now. So we had more funerals. And I would take my kids to the funerals. In part because of the wisdom of, 
one older saint named George, whose dad was a pastor. And he would always remember his dad taking him to funerals, walking by the open casket, seeing what one day will be his end, unless the Lord tarries. Friends, when we have a funeral at Warnell Road, let me encourage you. Take bereavement, take sick, take vacation. Get yourself here. You see, the writer in Ecclesiastes says this, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. What? He says it's better to go to a funeral than it is better than it is a wedding. Because this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. Fools eat, drink, party till they die, ignoring the reality of death. Wise people, they understand that they will give an account one day for how they lived. Fools push it aside. And we are just immersed in a culture that loves to do this. For years and years, churches used to have cemeteries where? Right beside them. So you can go out. You can remember that you will not live forever. At least in this body. In this way. But time has changed. We we push cemeteries to other places. We don't have any land here to do cemeteries. We won't do it here. I'm not proposing that. But it makes us face reality. Another thing we do, we, when we go to uh, visit North Carolina, there's a lot of older cemeteries there. History's a little bit older there. We can go, we can, you can just go and you see tombstones from the 1700s there. And no one's heard of these people. It might have been the mayor of the town. You have no idea. Friends, fame and fortune can often lie to us. Money, power, success, and job can deceive us into thinking that we have it all right now and we just need a little bit more. But death awaits us, and that's what the psalmist is getting at. That's the tension he feels. So I wonder about you. How have you been pushing the reality of death aside? Have you been living just for today, just for next year, or even for the subtle lie of just living for your retirement. I've met so many saints who live for their retirement and then get cancer. How foolish are we? Well, the psalm does not end here, praise God. There is really good news that deals with the unavoidable problem of death. We see... Secondly, a heart of wisdom. The brevity of life and a heart of wisdom. Look at verses 12 to 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as as you have afflicted us. 
and for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. An obvious fact that we all die is sometimes lost on us. If our logic was not mixed with our sin, we would see clearly an appropriate response here. The brevity of life that you see in verses 1 to 11, we would know with just natural logic how to act. But you see here, Moses doesn't say, 